Welcome to NASA Edge. An inside and outside look at all things NASA. I gotta tell you, this is a great time for aeronautics because the X-plane is coming back to NASA. It's awesome. We're being joined by David Richwine, who is the Deputy Project Manager for Technology for the Low Boom Flight Demonstration. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great, guys. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Right. Are you excited, too? I am very excited. This is a great time for the project, and it's good to be here to talk to you guys today. What is the Low Boom Flight Demonstration Project? So the NASA's done a lot of research over the last uh, decades, really, in uh, supersonic research, but the Low Boom Flight Demonstration is a kind of focused effort to work on the problem that we know is the, the most critical problem in supersonics, which is that low boom or the boom that people have heard um, from fighters over the years and so on, that uh, you don't want to hear that sound on the ground. And so we're working at the overland supersonic flight problem. So that's we view that as the most challenging problem. So if we can solve that and then work the other technologies at the same time, we feel like that lays a path for overland supersonic flight in the future. Which I have to say, for me personally, if I can reduce time in the air on a flight of any kind, how awesome is that? Especially from East Coast to West Coast and East back. East Coast, West Coast, London, right. Japan. Yeah, so you know, you, obviously you, the guy in the airplane wants to be half the time in the airplane, so that's certainly important too, but the other important part of that is the public on the ground and making sure they have the environmental or the boom or the noise that, that, that they hear on the ground. We want to make sure that's acceptable for the public as well. You're taking on the unique challenge of pleasing everyone. That's true. That's true. Very difficult, but that's the challenge that we have. We're going to learn all different aspects of uh, LBFD today. Uh, but I think uh, to kind of kick things off, the main focus to get to the low boom is the design of the aircraft. Uh, and I had a chance to sit down with the chief engineer for LBFD. So let's check it out. We're here with Jay Brannon, Chief Engineer for the Low Boom Flight Demonstrator. How are you doing, Dre? Doing good. So uh, tell me, as Chief Engineer, what is your role in the project? I'm kind of here to herd all the cats, uh, so to speak, as we're developing the uh, technologies that will be used for uh, putting this airplane together. So, you know, the NASA side will be developing a few subsystems ourselves, as well as putting all the requirements together for the airplane that then a contractor will actually build based on our requirements. Now, speaking of that aircraft, looking at the preliminary design of the, of the vehicle, it's, it's unlike any design that I've seen before on the commercial side. Since the plane is going supersonic, you have to design that aircraft a little bit differently than, let's say, a Boeing you know, 757, 737. What are some of the areas that you have to look for in designing a supersonic aircraft? The key item is, is we want to have a low noise uh, sonic boom. You know, the sonic boom, of course, is the reason why supersonic flight over land is not allowed because of the irritation of the noise to uh, people and, and animals and, and such. So the design that you see reflects the, the technologies that are being developed to reduce that, that sonic boom. And the sonic boom happens because of a pressure wave that the airplane creates. And so when you go supersonic, you have a pressure increase in the beginning of the airplane of the shock wave. And then at the end, you have the recovery of the pressure, so it's too sharp. Uh, changes of pressure, and those happen very quickly. And what we're trying to do is design the airplane to slow down how quick that pressure change occurs, which then makes the noise that that pressure difference generates less. Now we're looking at the shock waves, so is that why you have to make the, uh, the, the fuselage much longer than a typical commercial airliner? Right, so it's, it's in order to uh, get that curve to be gentle, for the, the shock wave pressure distribution to be gentle, Normally it's an end wave, so it's real sharp increase, then a sharp recovery at the end. And what we want to do is, is round that out. So the, the change in pressure might be very similar, but it's going to occur over a longer period of time. 
So that's a function of the lift distribution and the, and the volume and area of the airplane. And that kind of results in that long, long airplane. So you can spread all that stuff out and spread all the, the shock waves out so they don't coalesce into one sharp pressure spike at the beginning and the end of the airplane. And then also, you know, looking at the, the wings of the aircraft, it doesn't seem like your typical traditional commercial airliner wings. It looks like it's more of a swept back approach. So, so that high sweep wing is, is a traditional way to reduce the drag for supersonic airplanes. So in most supersonic airplanes, you'll see that uh, they have a highly swept wing so that they don't generate all that drag. That's just a very common supersonic design feature to keep the drag down. So for us, the drag is not that important as long as we have enough power to overcome it. And we have a, a high thrust engine that we're using based on a, a fighter technology engine. So drag is secondary to us, but again, that, that volume and lift distribution is kind of the primary thing, assuming that we have enough power to, to overcome the drag. So the whole purpose of LBFD is, it's not so much the final design of what's gonna look like down the road, but you wanna make sure that you can actually achieve load boom and then get that data that's needed for regulatory change to hopefully to change the, uh, the rules of actually flying a supersonic vehicle over land. That's right. So yeah, this will be a kind of a noise generator and we'll be able to adjust how much noise we make with the boom by flying different types of profiles and do a campaign over different places across the United States and get community response data and then use that as a vehicle for uh, regulatory change. And then the other thing is, is this will validate our tools of designing airplanes to adjust that uh, sonic boom signature to get the lower perceived noise levels on an airplane. So at the end of this project, we'll have design methodology, you know, that's, that's validated by flight test. And you can apply that for new airplane design. You know, David, Jay did a great job talking about the design of the aircraft. And one of the questions I forgot to ask him is, how practical is it gonna be for a commercial supersonic aircraft to be that long and be able to move around airports? Right, so the, the primary purpose of our project, the Low Boom Flight Demonstration Project, is really just looking at the overland supersonic flight and being a data generator for regulatory change. But there are challenges that the commercial airplanes will have to overtake as well and, and work. And we're also working those anywhere from the environmental concerns like noise and uh, emissions at a high altitude and cost effectiveness and, and things like that. And so we're working those as well. And so. Again, while NASA's primary objective is the, the data part of this and for regulatory change, they're also we're working the longer term challenges that have to do with the, the challenges that would enable commercial flight. So say you fly the demonstration and it's completely successful and you meet all your objectives and designers want to build those commercial craft. Will you guys provide all the data that you uh, gathered for the design process and make that available to those right. designers? Well, that's a great question. So that's that's one of the important parts that we took on and when we did this experiment, we were saying, okay, our approach is going to be, while some of the, there might be some proprietary tools involved that we might want to protect, we really want the data to be open for everybody. So when we go fly these, these flights and do this atmospheric data collection and the community studies, we want to really want to make sure this data is available to all of our partners that are currently working these technologies so that they can make use of this data. So it's safe to say that however long, at, at some point when we have our first commercial supersonic aircraft at an airport, I mean, it's it may not look like our demonstrator. Right. So the intent of the demonstrator really is to be not physically traceable to a commercial product, but we want it to, the boom to be similar to that commercial product so that we're really just simulating the sonic boom and it's a sonic boom generator. And we have many other challenges that we want to wear. We want to make it a cost-effective solution. The commercial product would be a little more different. 
Well, of course, once you get the design, there's also the element of simulation. Like, I didn't even realize that you had simulators for the low boom flight demonstrator at this point in the process that had already begun. I had a chance to sit down with Tim Cox, who works with the LBFD simulator. Let's check it out. We're here at Armstrong Flight Research Center talking to Tim Cox, a control and dynamics engineer who works on the engineering simulator for the low boom flight demonstrator. Tim, the big question I have, because I normally think of simulators as, as learning to fly and the ability to fly cool planes. But in this case, this is an engineering simulator. Yeah. What exactly is an engineering simulator? Part of it is simulator is to pilot training and things. But what we just finished now in terms of the low boom project is a preliminary design phase. And so in that preliminary design phase, there's a lot of uh, design trade studies going on. You know, it's a lot of iteration on the design. And so what you really want is a simulator that doesn't have to be too fancy in terms of what's in the cockpit and everything, but you want a simulator that has the best software models that go into it. So that way you can do these design trades. For example, with the control laws, which are basically the software that says when the pilot moves a stick, how are the control surfaces going to move? There's a lot to designing that. You want the control laws to make the airplane stable, and then you want them to provide good handling qualities or good dynamics so that the pilot can fly it easily and do what he needs to do with it. So in that case, would you do things like if they said it's not as responsive as I need it to be as a pilot, then you would look at making that adjustment? Yes. So, so one of the things that we've done in this study, last phase study, is that we've, for example, uh, we've put a couple of boxes on the runway, small boxes, and said, okay, and we bring the pilots in and say, now I want you to try to land inside those boxes. And so that's a challenging task for them. So they have to be in the loop trying to get the airplane to land, touch down where he wants it to land. And the hope there is that as he does that, he will provide us comments back on whether it's easy for him to do, if it's hard, if, it's, if it is hard, why? What kind of deficiencies are there in these control laws? So that way we can now go back and fix them before it gets too far down the process of, of the design process. Now, do you ever do things like program little uh, subroutines that say, don't put the landing gear down just to, just to tweak the pilot? Oh, <laughs> that's a good idea. We'll have to try to work that in. <laughs> I'm full of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, well, we, we do things like um, present with him potential failures or things like that, uh, or perhaps uh, give him uh, um, gusts or kind of a difficult atmosphere to fly in, you might say, so that way he has to, he has to earn his money, you know. <laughs> if you make it too easy, it's no fun. So this is an X-plane that we're talking about building, and since it doesn't exist, how are you actually testing in this simulator? So one of the things that's been going on is that there's been a lot of um, data being collected on different models. So first of all, we, we take advantage of what's been done in the past. So we have a, a core simulation architecture that we use that has a lot of the fundamental stuff that's relevant to any airplane in it. We'll take, for example, a, a certain software model that goes into that sim. We can borrow it from a different airplane that's similar, but then as we go forward, we'll do tests and we'll update that model accordingly. So uh, one of the big things that we look to is the aerodynamics. That's probably one of the models that has some of the most, I think, uncertainty on it. And so there's a lot of work done on computerized code that can tell us what they think the arrow is. And we can do some wind tunnel tests to kind of support that. 
then we can incorporate that into an aerodynamics model and start to fold those into the sim. And that development process gets continually refined throughout this whole design phase. And, on, and as we go forward, it'll continue to be designed to develop. That's got to be one of the most unique features of developing an X-Plane. I mean, you're literally going through this entire process from scratch. Yes, um, it's, it is quite a process, and, but, but there is a lot of, of tools available to help us in, in being able to, and to develop these simulations. So the simulators at first will be maybe a little rough, but as we go along, they'll get better and better. They'll have more complexity to them, uh, which will allow us to evaluate more and more different characteristics uh, of the airplane and the pilot and the loop as well. And so that, that way, hopefully by the time it's ready to fly, you know, we'll have a pretty decent sim that he can now go in and, and learn a lot of these characteristics before he gets in the airplane which will help make it safer for him too. So if you do your job perfectly, he'll get out of the plane after flying and say, eh, no different than the simulator. That's the goal. That's the goal, of course. That's, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> so spoiler alert, Dave, I didn't actually get a chance to fly in the simulator when we were out at Armstrong. You but did? I, yeah, yeah. It was cool. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, well, some, some of us uh, did, some of us didn't. But what I'm wondering is, how about you? Have you had the opportunity? Is it a perk of the job? Do you get to fly in the simulator? Well, I wouldn't call it a perk, but I generally, everybody, the engineering folks that are on the project get to fly the simulator, and we all kind of make comments. And so it's good for everybody to kind of understand what's the realism of the simulator. We're you know, eventually trying to get that software and the hardware as realistic as we can get it to replicate the airplane. So, you know, while that's not, I wouldn't call it a perk, it is certainly interesting because you, it helps you understand how the airplane handles in flight. Did you provide any uh, essential feedback that may help the development? Well, I'm, I'm not as qualified as some of these guys like Tim that you talked to who really have a better feel for how the, the handling qualities of the airplane and how they would like it to behave in a high speed and a low speed environment. Because that's really the trick here is the landing and the takeoff for an airplane like this is gonna be much trickier. And so that kind of drives the need for additional simulation in that flight regime as well. But you have flight experience uh, in an F-15 at, I have at flown. Armstrong. In so my, in my younger days, I have flown, so, yes, So you can, you, you sort of have uh, a good perspective of real supersonic flight as opposed to looking at this engineering simulator. Is there any similarities between the two? Well, you certainly want the hardware very similar so you have the same displays and, and things set up in the airplane. You know, supersonic flight in the backseat of a fighter is just the same as low speed flight. You wouldn't know it when you're at high altitude. You don't really get that sensation of going that much faster. So, but I think the simulators are a valuable tool from a safety perspective and understanding how the airplane operates. And that's a great point because uh, the lucky person who's going to be flying LBFD, Niels uh, Larsen, uh, he's not going to be able to see ahead of him because he's going to be looking at a computer screen while he's flying. Right. And I had a chance to uh, talk with Niels Larson at NASA Armstrong and see what's it going to be like to fly the LBFD. I tell you, this is a pretty awesome hangar. There's a lot of cool aircraft here. How long have you been flying for NASA? Just over 11 years now. And you have your favorite airplane in here? Uh, whatever I'm flying today. You're going to be the, the chief pilot for the LBFD when it gets built? Well, that, that's the plan right now anyway. You know, this, this is a different type of supersonic aircraft than, let's say, the F-18 or F-15. Uh, what are going to be some of the challenges that you're going to be facing when you fly this new aircraft? Well, probably the biggest one we have is there's no forward field of view in the current design. 
It's almost like the Spirit of St. Louis when you look at it and you know there's a big fuel tank in the way. In this case, there's a big nose in the way. So we can't see forward, so we're gonna have an external vision system, basically cameras and a, a screen to be able to look forward. I mean, is that kind of nerve-wracking to not be able to see out the front when you're flying an aircraft? Well, it's kind of funny because a lot of times you'll see we have some two-seaters, that's a single-seater behind us, but when you're in the back seat and you're an instructor, uh, there's a lot of times you can't see out the front anyway because there's an ejection seat in front of you or somebody's okay. big head in front of you. So you learn to fly without that. I assume that you're gonna have to have a lot of hours in the simulator before we actually take the LBFD up for its first flight? Oh yeah, we'll have to have a, a lot of simulation both before the first flight and, and most likely as we continue to fly the airplane through the years. We want to keep the hours off the airplane so that it be, can be used for uh, the research side and not so much for our proficiency. So we're hoping that the simulator can be pretty accurate so that we can get our uh, landings down in the simulator so I don't have to uh, you know, burn all that time on the airplane. Before we actually start collecting the data to make sure that the aircraft can actually achieve this low sonic boom when we get the data that, that, you know, that we need, you're going to have to learn about the aircraft first, I'm, I'm assuming. Taking off, landing, getting used to the controls uh, before we actually take data for low boom. Is that fair to say? That's right. The first uh, phase that we'll have is actually ringing out the airplane. The classic envelope expansion that you've always heard, you know, pushing the envelope, going out and making sure that the airplane is safe to be flown in the envelope where we're going to need to go get the research. And how long does that normally take to, to shake down an aircraft, make sure it's ready for, for flight? Well, it can be, it really kind of depends on the complexity of the airplane. We're hoping that for low boom, that'll be somewhere around a year that we could do that. And, and hopefully there's, there's not a whole lot of systems that are, are incredibly complex uh, with the airplane. So we're uh, pretty hopeful that that's realistic. You're gonna be relying on all your experiences and flying different aircraft, being a test pilot, being in the Air Force to make sure that you're successful at, at flying this aircraft. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, I've flown about a hundred different airplanes some of them only once, and have uh, different envelope expansion and airworthiness flight tests from my uh, previous days in the Air Force and on exchange with the Navy. And here at Armstrong, we actually do some airworthiness certification kind of stuff every now and then. So we're pretty familiar with what has to go on, and uh, we're just excited to get back to X-Planes. It is. It is exciting. The, the fact that hopefully one day that, you know, uh, you know business jets and even the, even the commercial side, we can fly supersonic, you know, over land, which would be pretty cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. I always give the example that around here, it takes about three and a half hours to drive to Vegas. And uh, when I do some of the work in the F-15, you know, it'll take me about, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes to fly over there, maybe a little bit more, turn around, and I get back in about eight. Wow. So, you know, the kids really like that. Picture this, you're, you're on the LBFD, it's your first flight test, you're getting ready to take off. Are you gonna hear Chuck Yeager's voice in your head? Uh, I've met him before. I, I don't know. We're both from West Virginia originally, so this, um, this, you know, it's, it's the stars tradition. are lining yeah. up. <laughs> You're making yeah. history. Yeah, there's not a day you don't think about that when you look up at the skies around here. I mean, we have an X1 sitting out in front of the center here, and you know that was a purpose-designed airplane to go and break the sound barrier. Right now, we're building a purpose-designed X plane again to go and break the sound barrier again, to go faster, just like those original X-Planes, but this time we're trying to go faster, but we're also trying to do it without producing too much of a boom, too much impact to everybody else. It's, it's exciting because you're back there again. You're back to the early X-Planes and some of that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's gonna be exciting. We're really looking forward to it. You know, I thought I had a cool job at NASA, working for NASA Edge, but I tell you, Neil's 
he is going to be the man of the hour when he flies the LBFD. As, as a pilot, that's like the that's like the Olympics. That's like the the Super Bowl for getting an X plane. I mean, flying an X plane for a test pilot that's the best job you can possibly get. Well, you know, Nils and some of the other pilots that are working on the project have really done a great job. So the glamour part of this is flying the airplane, but the, really the pilots have gotten engaged in the design, the design of the simulators, how the airplane should handle safety features. So I think the pilots in this case have really gotten engaged in the design from the early stages. So it's not just the glamorous part where you guys think oh, it's all about flying. There's a lot of other important stuff that they have contributed to the project at this point. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing his feedback when he first flies a plane, how difficult it is to actually take off and land and not really seeing what's going on in front of you. And I imagine that, that, as you said, Dave, being part of that design process, if you're gonna fly this uh, X plane as a test pilot, you wanna know everything about how it was designed and how right. it functions and how it operates because the more you know, the safer you will be. Yeah, so start. by the time he flies this external vision, he'll be very familiar with it. And so for him to say this is his first flight, it, it won't, it will be no impact to him at all. He'll completely, and even if the screen went out, he would be completely comfortable flying the airplane. So even in the failure modes that we anticipate, if they if they happen, it's, gonna, it's all gonna work out and um, it'll be, you know, no problem for him. Okay, David, so a lot of the preliminary testing is done, wind tunnel testing is done. Uh, now we've gotten to the point where we actually can go and, and build an aircraft. Right, and so it's a very exciting time. I mean, we really, we've done the, all the concept studies, we've done a lot of the homework that we need to do, done a lot of the wind tunnel testing to look at these types of configurations and the flight controls and things we need to understand. And so we're really at, at, the, at the door to go build that demonstrator that we need to do this. So it's really, it was a very exciting time. So over the next, what, two to three years, it's I mean, we're going to be in this phase of, of, of building and testing and, and flying this aircraft? Right. So it takes roughly two or three years to design, detailed design and build a demonstrator. And then we expect the first flight in the next couple of years. And then uh, we'll kind of go do the testing at that point, understand the atmospherics, and then work our way onto those community studies that are the ultimate goal of the project. So is it safe to say by, I don't know, maybe within 10, 15 years that there could be people flying supersonic over, over land? I think so. The regulatory process, uh, like many governmental regulatory processes, moves a little slow sometimes and it right. takes several paths to get that to happen. But I think they'll have the data in the next five or six years and then we can make those regulatory changes. And that will help enable the, the kind of the commercial products to start coming to market and really for industry to step up and make those products that we're all talking about so that poor Blair can get to where he's going in half the amount of time. Well, I was going to say, and in about half the time to get all the regulatory change, there should be an Xbox version of the LBFD that I can be flying well, in Well, that might be where you home. fly, yes. <laughs> and, you, and you'll be flying it probably on an 8K television. Thankfully. Let, let's hope, we, right? That would be perfect. Hey, you're watching NASA Edge. An inside and outside look at all things NASA.